Good morning, everyone. Good evening, depending on where you are joining us. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Bam Banjai. I'm a lecturer at the University of Louisville at the Department of Pan-African Studies. And uh, I have the pleasure today to host this uh, panel on Pan-Africanism today, linking Africa and the diaspora for cultural, economic, and social empowerment. Now, just to remind you that this event is actually part of an annual event that we organize uh, called the African Heritage Festival. And we've been organizing that festival for uh, six years now, if I'm not mistaken. And thanks to the partnership between Bridge Kids International, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage and other organization in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, we were able to uh, hold that interesting and uh, very uh, prominent festival here in Kentucky. And since we're in a pandemic, we could not hold it this year. And instead, we decided to have this panel and talk about what unites us, uh, meaning people of Africa and people of, of African descent. So now to talk about uh, today's theme, I have, uh, we have a very rich panel uh, composed of Stacy Bailey Njai. And Stacy Bailey Njai is the founder and director of Bridge Kids International, a global nonprofit organization uh, that has been helping young people of African and young people of African diaspora uh, unleash their leadership capacities by creating community projects around education, health, environment, economic development, and girls' rights. So Stacy also worked in higher education for several years and was the director of the Muhammad Ali Center for Peace and Justice at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. Stacy, welcome to the panel. Our second panelist is Professor Babakar Mbai. Rakambay is a professor of English at Kent State University in Ohio. Uh, a native of Senegal, he received his PhD from Bowling Green State University in 2002. His research interests vary from Pan-African literature, film, and music to um, Black post-colonial and transnational uh, cultures. He's the author of several, several uh, books and articles, including Black Cosmopolitanism and Anti-Colonialism, uh, Pivotal Moments, uh, published by Routledge in 2017. He's also the author of The Trickster Comes West, uh, Pan-African Influence in Early Black Diasporan Narratives, published by University Press of Mississippi in 2009. And then the co-editor of Crossing Traditions, American Popular Music in Local and Global Contexts, published by Scarecrow in 2013. And his most recent work is entitled Gender and Sexuality in Senegalese Society, uh, published by Lexington Book in 2019. Dr. Mbaye, welcome to our panel. And uh, our third uh, panelist is uh, Okram Burton. And Okram is the executive director of the Kentucky Center for African-American Heritage in Louisville, Kentucky. He's an artist, a freedom fighter, and an educator who worked several years for um, the Jefferson County Public School System in Kentucky. 
he also traveled widely uh, through Africa and the African diaspora. And most of his artistic work, especially his uh, photography, have been inspired by his journeys through the, the Black Atlantic. Um, Akram Burton, welcome to, to the panel. And then next is Dr. Uh, Nicholas MacLeod. Dr. MacLeod is assistant professor of African and African diaspora history at Ryder University. He received his undergraduate degree in history from Bucknell University in 2011. In 2020, he completed his doctoral studies in Pan-African studies from the University of Louisville with a concentration on Africa and African diaspora history. Uh, Dr. MacLeod's research seeks to enrich the emerging literature on the international nature of uh, 20th century Black liberation movements and contribute uh, also to a growing interest in the topics of transnationalism, migration, and identity in African and African diaspora history. So he has also sub several uh, publications, including a monograph that is an offshoot of his uh, dissertation on Pan-Africanism and the influence of West Indians on governance in Kwame Krumah's Ghana. And then finally, uh, we have Amos Izerimana, and Amos is a Brundon-born peace-building practitioner. He is the co-founder of Tuvugani and a program manager for the Return Movement. Both initiatives uh, seek to engage the African diaspora in development, uh, in development of their places of origin and of current residents. Amos is committed to capacity building for uh, developing communities and hold interest in international human rights and law, transnational justice and Pan-Africanism. So to our panelists, I say welcome. And uh, also I would like to thank all the people who are joining us live on Facebook and on, on Zoom. Thank you for, for, uh, for your time and participating in this uh, discussion. Without any delay, I'm gonna go ahead and start with uh, the first question. When you talk about Pan-Africanism, of course, uh, it would be useful to start with a definition. And Dr. Mbaye, I was wondering if you could provide us with a uh, brief definition of the concept of Pan-Africanism. And can you also walk us through uh, what I call the historical trajectory of Pan-Africanism as a concept and a movement that has uh, guided the work and activism of prominent figures such as Blyden, Dubois, Kwame Krumah, and also how is Pan-Africanism still relevant in the 21st century. So definition, uh, the historical trajectory and the relevance of Pan-Africanism in the 21st century. Akhtambay. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that uh, uh, wonderful uh, introduction to the panel, uh, Dr. Njai. Um, first, I would like to thank you for having invited me, for having uh, really given me this great opportunity uh, to have an exchange, a scholarly exchange with wonderful colleagues Pan-Africanism, uh, as it is usually described, uh, refers to uh, Africanism conceptualized from a transnational standpoint. You know, so the 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 the, the term pan uh, refers to the the the, the large scope. You know, uh, panorama, uh, panoramic. Um, so if you are looking at an object or at an idea from a larger scope, 
you are looking at it, you are observing it from a panoramic, you know, and transnational, global, larger standpoint. So when you define what it means to be black, and Africanism itself is very kind of broad, right? You know, Africanism can be conceptualized culturally as a term referring to African survivals, African retentions, you know, African cultural patterns and traditions uh, that are observable in different parts of the world. You know, like you go to uh, Haiti and you see a particular cultural uh, pattern that you describe as a, an, an Africanism uh, and, and similar forms of uh, uh, Africanisms are uh, sometimes noticeable in other parts of the black world, such as in the United States. Uh, it could be in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It could be in Senegal, in Benin. Um, so that's what Africanism means uh, from one standpoint. Uh, but uh, Africanism also, as you know, like for instance, like in the way uh, Toni Morrison describes it uh, in Playing in the Dark, uh, refers to the historical ways in which the black subject the African subject has been conceptualized through the mind of the uh, person of European descent, and particularly through the mind of uh, uh, American authors of European descent, such as Mark Twain, um, uh, for instance. Um, um, and now when we come back to the term Pan-Africanism, um, we use it oftentimes as a, a word uh, that refers to a social political, cultural, and intellectual movement uh, that focuses on the destiny of people of African descent. And here I'm referring to uh, Emmanuel Geis' essay, Pan-Africanism, uh, or the works of, let us say, uh, Ali Mazrui uh, on the subject. Um, so here we're talking about the shared history of struggle between people of African descent and the resistance of these uh, people against colonialism, against the consequences of slavery, against uh, imperialism, and against, of course, what's going on today as neo-colonialism. So in that sense, Pan-Africanism is a long tradition. Uh, now, from my standpoint, particular standpoint, I tend to focus more on uh, the, 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 the quality of Pan-Africanism as an intellectual movement. You know, for me, um, that's what I find the most interesting, but it doesn't mean that I deny the other aspects or qualities of Pan-Africanism. Uh, but in my own scholarship, I refer to Pan-Africanism as an intellectual tradition um, on the, 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 the past and the future of people of African descent. And therefore, I see in it disagreements. You know, I see contradictions. Uh, and I also see unity. You know, I see consensus. Uh, but what I see the most is like the diversity of thoughts and approaches to the problem facing people of African descent that Black intellectuals have. You know, one of the problems that we face uh, the most in, uh, I would say, uh, Africana studies or black studies or uh, et cetera, uh, is that uh, we are often perceived as uh, unidimensional. You know, I mean, let, uh, let, let's, for instance, think about the, the, the claim of Paul Gilroy, right, in the Black Atlantic, uh, Modernity and Double Consciousness, in his book, that, uh, you know, he argues that one of the problems in black studies, and he focuses more in, on the United States, is... Uh, that strain of essentialism, you know. Now, I do agree with Gilroy that there is definitely essentialism uh, within uh, black studies, uh, but uh, more important, but, but, but he should problematize that essentialism because essentialism is oftentimes uh, a strategic means of resistance, you see. Um, and he should also realize the fact that beyond essentialism, uh, black intellectual thoughts, black intellectual traditions have this very vibrant uh, tradition 
that I call Pan-Africanism, which to me refers to intellectual traditions of agreements and disagreements of uh, consensus and, and, and questioning, you know, where they have been, uh, how they should move forward, uh, what they should reconfigure, reconstruct, you know, in the struggle, those kinds of things. And to me, like, that's, that's what's really lacking today. I mean, if you want me to, uh, I think like today, um, our challenge is to make sure that that rich intellectual tradition is not lost, that it's passed on to the, uh, to the next generation. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much for your brilliant definition and uh, uh, the explanation of the origin and uh, the meaning of Pan-Africanism. So now you cannot talk about Pan-Africanism uh, without mentioning the centrality of Afro-Caribbeans and um, uh, African-Americans, of course. Now, how important uh, was the role of Caribbeans in the inception of Pan-Africanism and in the translation of the ideology into concrete social, political, and economic actions. Dr. McLeod. Yes, and I'd like to thank you, Bamba, as well, for um, putting this panel together. Um, first, and thank you, everyone, for attending. Um, when we think about Pan-Africanism, uh, we definitely have to understand that West Indians, Caribbeans have been instrumental um, in its formation uh, as a concept, as well as its um, proliferation throughout um, the African diaspora um, since its inception. Some will even date the first um, um, uh, Pan-African uh, action um, as, you know, some people will attribute that to the Haitian Revolution. And they'll say, you know, this was truly a Pan-African um, moment, uh, the, the reverberations throughout the diaspora that um, a nation like Haiti being formed and the rebellion taking place there, uh, it went throughout the, the Caribbean, it went into the United States, it inspired uh, revolts. Gabriel Prosser's revolt um, was inspired by the Haitian Revolution and, and his plan ultimately was to commandeer ships and sail to Haiti. You know, so these are early instances of this, these Pan-African um, sentiments. Um, and so I, myself, when I, when I think about Pan-Africanism in its, in its modern iterations, I, I, I definitely start with the West Indies. I start with um, Edward Wilmot Blyden, um, connecting the experience in the diaspora back to Africa, embracing this African personality, um, centralizing that in the way that we think about our existence politically. Um, you know, he was, he was the, one, of, one of the first, you know, to start making these trips back to the continent um, to, to understand and, and, and conceive of ways to strengthen those linkages and, and even um, find and, and build a home for, for, for Africans in the diaspora to return. Mm -hmm. um, as a movement, now, when we, when we think about Pan-Africanism in the 20th century, it, 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 can, it, it must be um, began with H. Sylvester Williams, who, who was from Trinidad. Uh, and he formed the, the African Association in London. Mm -hmm. um, and when we think about Pan-Africanism, we have to think about, uh, especially with West Indians, we have to think about how important the role of migration is. Um, and so when Sylvester Williams starts the African Association in London, um, he's forming it based on a number of professionals, students that are in London. Um, to essentially come together from wherever they are in the diaspora. If they're from the diaspora and the West Indies and the Americas, if they're from Africa, 
all of these individuals, these prominent individuals in London getting together um, to discuss the particularities of their oppression and their conditions wherever they are. Um, H. Sylvester Williams was very instrumental in that. Um, and for him to have Haiti sitting at the table um, mm -hmm. for these discussions, to have Liberia sitting at the table for these, dis these discussions, a young W.E.B. Du Bois who uh, embraces his own Haitian uh, descent um, was there as well. Um, and, and this movement is taken on um, by Du Bois afterwards. And, and uh, we see that movement throughout the early 20th century. We see that mantle of Pan-Africanism picked up by Marcus Garvey, mm -hmm. uh, who, is, who is, John Henry Clark called him the ultimate Pan-Africanist. Um, and he's the one who revolutionized the notion of Pan-Africanism and, and Black nationalism, and this embrace of Blackness and Africanness as, as, as a badge of honor for your identity and, and, and not a, a mark of shame. Um, and so, so we look at what people like, Mark, like, like Marcus Garvey did and how they inspired uh, a generation of anti-colonial activists, uh, not just in the West Indies, but in Africa as well. Um, and so you have Pan-Africanism working um, with groups, young Pan-Africanists in the 1930s coming up, like George Padmore and C.L.R. James, um, Claudia Jones in the 1940s. Um, you have Amy Ashwood Garvey, all of these people who are coming together um, and, and discussing their issues with people like Joma Kenyatta, Nandi Ezekwe. Um, and you have individuals, like I mentioned, this, this gets into my own research, uh, individuals like Padmore and James and people, scholars like Arthur Lewis, um, Ross McConan, who go on to mentor uh, African nationalists like Kwame Nkrumah and Nandi Ezekwe. Um, and sort of carry on it and push the movement um, beyond these uh, monumental congresses, Pan-African congresses that are taking place um, and transitioning the idea and concept of Pan-Africanism, um, not just from being a rallying point and ideology of consciousness, um, but they also transition it by placing it into practice and governance in a place like Ghana, mm -hmm. where someone like a Kwame Nkrumah invites people from the diaspora to help him build the nation of Ghana. Um, and my, my dissertation uh, focuses on the West Indian influence and how prominent they were in, in uh, the nation building process in Ghana in terms of designing economic, um, economic plans and development plans for the nation, political strategy, strategy uh, building government institutions and, and even running Pan-African press um, and, and placing the African continent in conversation with what's going on, the civil rights movement that's going on um, in the United States at this time as well. Um, and then you have someone like a Kwame Nkrumah who after you know, his time ruling and, 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 and governing in Ghana, who takes on uh, a West Indian, a young West Indian like Kwame Ture and mentors him. And, and, Kwame, and you know, Kwame Ture takes Pan-Africanism on um, into the 21st century. Um, mm -hmm. We have to, have to recognize um, the, the, the monumental and um, um, essential component of West Indians and their contributions to Pan-Africanism. Mm -hmm. That's definitely there mm -hmm. in uh, the movement sense as ideology um, and especially in the academy. Um, we have Pan-African scholars like um, 
you have a, a Walter Rudd who sets the bar for, for pan-African-minded um, intellectuals. Um, and you have that being taken on by people like Tony Martin, Rupert Lewis. Um, and today we have Hakeem Adi who, who, who's, who's taking on um, this same thing. And so I definitely see myself um, with my own uh, Caribbean, West Indian um, background um, mm -hmm. carrying on this legacy. Um, and that's something that uh, we must all strive to do. And recognizing that um, our struggles, wherever we are, in the West Indies, United States, Africa, they're linked and they've always been from Pan-Africanism's inception. Awesome. Well, thank you for that uh, uh, brilliant explanation of uh, West Indian rules in the inception and development of Pan-Africanism. Now, when you talk about Pan-Africanism as a concept and a movement, but also as guidelines, you cannot omit the uh, personal connections that people of the African diaspora, people of African descent, have with the continent of Africa and some of the work, the Pan-African work that they do across the Atlantic. And, and Stacy Bailinjai, you are a person who have a strong relationship uh, with the African continent. Uh, besides going back and forth to Africa uh, for the last two decades, you have been doing life-changing work uh, with young people of Africa and young people of African descent in the United States through uh, your nonprofit organization that you founded. Uh, why is it important for people of African descent to connect with the land of their ancestors? And also, what is the significance of linking Black folks across the Atlantic through transformative projects and leadership uh, capacity buildings like you do uh, with your organization? Thank you so much for that, um, Bamba. I am, I'm sorry, I just had a little technical difficulty there. Um, I think it's critical. When we talk about, I think an important part, I mean, as a, someone who's like a practitioner of um, Pan-Africanism, um, it's really critical that we have the ability to self-determine. You know, when we consider all the history, all of the, the history of um, oppression, colonialism, slavery, or like a slave trade, or wh wherever, no matter which slave trade it was, mm -hmm. it's put us in position of not always being able to, you know, self-determine. And even more than that, that there's been so much misinformation uh, that we have about ourselves, but also about each other. And so we have that separation as well as um, a disconnect. Um, and for us, you know, at Bridge Kids International, um, we really believe that there's so much power um, in that connection and that that's what I've been hearing, you know, the gentlemen, the other panelists talk about today when, when we think about the perspectives that we have to share, the information that we can share across um, the, di the Africa and diaspora, it really, um, you know, is in our best interest. Uh, and it's really important for us you can do that in the diaspora because if you, especially if you're living in a country or in a community that has a mix um, of people, diaspora, um, there's a lot we can learn from me. I think that the importance of travel is critical because um, so many of us have like this mythological, um, you know, notion about Africa. If you are someone who is not, you know, from there or have direct connections, and being able to travel, develop your own relationships, and have an authentic um, experience, um, I think is really critical too. Um, and I think 
when we look at the potential for um, economic development, economic growth, we have uh, five focus areas, as Bamba mentioned, and one of them is, you know, economic development. And we've seen that in the way that our, we have Bridge Kids groups, um, we are in six countries, and they're youth and young adults who develop their own um, community-based projects. And so we're not, it's not the kind of, you know, relationship where it's just about people in, um, you know, richer countries providing resources for people, you know, in the developing world. It's just not, that's not what we do. We focus on young people as leaders in their own community coming together on equal footing. Um, and, you know, we find that that model really works, um, not only because it's, it's just respectful and, you know, as it should be, but also there are so many, again, resources to share in lots of different directions. And we have had different members from different countries um, visiting each other, staying with each other, living with each other, that kind of thing. And I think in the, as we look into the future, laying the foundation, the relationships are at the core. So giving people a platform and an opportunity to connect with each other, because sometimes that's part of the problem. It's like, how do you get connected um, when you're talking about, you know, very practical terms? But so that's part of what we do um, is getting people connected up with each other. And those relationships develop like organically also through some of the work that we do. And then over time, um, and this is what we're anticipating in the future as these young adults grow and develop and are um, taking on these roles in their communities, they have a global network. And so that mind, um, that mindset of being, um, I am a global citizen, um, I am someone who is deeply rooted in my heritage. I have not only knowledge, but also a positive sense of self-identity. Um, and I see that as something that is critical and important um, for me. Then, you know, there's so much, you know, impact that that can have. Um, and we can see people investing in other countries, um, supporting each other where in need and um and growing and develop developing intellectually and um so i think that when we talk about you know pan-africanism today and what we can do especially with the use of technology even what we're doing here today and we have folks um i'm sure who hope who are maybe even on the continent or somewhere in the caribbean that we can we can come together and we can exchange ideas without even having to travel. We can wake up. And, I mean, there are mornings where I get like calls on WhatsApp, you know, from some of the from the Bridge Kids groups, and and now we need to we absolutely of this ability to connect. I think that's where the richness is, and that's a, a wonderful history and a wonderful tradition that we have of being in each other's company, but also challenging each other and then uh, supporting each other. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Stacy, for the wonderful work you are doing with young folks of African descent and young Africans. And I personally have a connection with uh, your organization for having been the president and, uh, of Bridge Kids Senegal uh, for several years and uh, also had the honor to work with other groups uh, all around the globe. And, uh, and I can assure you, you guys are doing a wonderful, wonderful job. So like 
Stacy uh, Okram Burton is also a practitioner of uh, Pan-Africanism. And uh, like I said, also an activist who worked uh, tirelessly in uh, black communities. And Okram, back in the 1950s, 60s, and, and 70s, uh, we noticed that there was a stronger connection between African-Americans and African freedom movements. Now, over the years, uh, we see that the, connection, the connections have loosened, basically. And um, my question is, from a Pan-African point of view, why is it important for Africans and people of African descent to build solid uh, social, political, and cultural relationships? Why is that important, even today? Thank you, Bama, for this invitation uh, to be on this panel. This is a very important uh, topic that we are discussing, and we need to have these conversations more frequently. Um, it's important because we have to build a, ca uh, a counter narrative. Uh, we, we've been uh, up against um, oppressive forces for quite some time. And, and not just here in the United States, on the continent, in the Caribbean, we all share uh, a common struggle. Um, and we need to continue uh, developing relationships as, as Stacy mentioned. I, I really like her approach to that because this is a long range struggle. This is not a 100 yard dash. This is a marathon relay, all right? In fact, we, we, we have, inherited the baton from the ancestors whose shoulders we stand on. Um, and uh, we must learn from them. And uh, as uh, I guess uh, Professor Mdai talked about, it, the idea that we have a diversity of thought um, and we must, you know, submit to that and begin to understand that uh, the value of a Du Bois and a, a value of a Marcus Garvey are both important. And when you have colonialist forces who pit one thought against the other, and then we then choose a side, when, when you look at it historically, both of them had something important to say as it relates to our liberation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important. Now, this whole issue of relationships, I, I think, is, is something that we have to do over time. We, we actually have to go to the continent and, whenever possible, connect with people who come from the continent and from the Caribbean and begin to discuss these issues. Um, I'll give you a good example. When I lived in Boston, uh, USIA, uh, federal government used to sponsor trips for artisans and what have you to come visit the United States. Mm -hmm. The tendency was that they would never bring them to the black community. A friend of mine who worked uh, in DC called me because they were trying to really break through that whole issue. Um, and so I was one of the contact people. So whenever Africans came through Boston, I made sure 
that they were brought into the black community um, and was exposed to what's going on. So it would counter uh, what they normally would get either through word of mouth or through media or what have you. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of those people I've, I've maintained relationships with. One was uh, uh, a person from uh, South Africa that actually shared, uh, uh, was in a cell about six cells down from Nelson Mandela. Um, he was with the, uh, the PAC. Um, and I didn't know at the time. He never told me when he came to Boston and I never knew. It wasn't until I went to South Africa and uh, called on him that I realized who he was, you know? Um, so, um, and we, we still are in contact. We still, you know, are in touch. Um, I've been able to organize uh, uh, tours of Robin Island with him because he was there. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and if he's available, he would take the people that I would bring over um, so that they could get a very authentic uh, presentation um, of, of, of Robin Island and the history. Um, so these relationships are really, really important. Uh, they're important, you know, also because we have to break down the stereotypes that exist on both sides mm-hmm. of, of the pond. Um, when I was in South Africa, um, uh, friends of mine uh, who were with the ANC took me to a braai. A braai is like a picnic or a, you know, cookout. So when I get there, there's some young brothers there and they were really excited that because they knew that I was there along with a couple other people from the United States. And I guess they wanted to try out what they knew. And so when I got to the door, uh, one of the younger brothers said, what's up, my nigga? All right. And I I looked at him. I looked at him and I said, "Do do you know my name? He said, no, sir. No, sir. I mean, he was polite. You know, it wasn't like he was trying to offend me or anything, right? And he said, no, my name is Akram Burton. I said, what's your name? All right. He told me his name. I said, I suggest that you stop watching movies and TVs because I don't appreciate you addressing me that way. Mm -hmm. Well, my friends from the AMC knew, they kind of like just turned all the way because they knew how I was going to come off. And what, what happened was, that whole time, those young brothers were with me the whole time wanting to know more because no one ever challenged them uh, with that kind of thinking. Um, And I think it's important that we begin to have those courageous conversations because we are carrying a lot of the baggage that has been hoisted on us as part of our oppression. Um, And we need to really if we're going to come together, we really do need to deal with those issues because they get in the way of relationships. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there and, uh, you know, maybe people have questions or whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Akram, for uh, walking us through the relationships between Africans and people of African descent and why it is important to uh keep working on them and maintaining them in that same vein amos is working on building uh those relationships uh here in the united states 
So almost you are on the verge of forming a Pan-African youth group in Louisville, Kentucky, that is uh, partly focused on economic development. Uh, can you tell us more about this group? And as a young African living in America, what does Pan-Africanism mean to you and to this initiative that you are working on? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, uh, Bamba, for having me and uh, also all the panelists who have shared a lot of wisdom uh, in terms of this whole ideology uh, today. Um, and if you don't mind, I would like to also discuss about another initiative um, that you mentioned in my introduction, uh, the Return Movement. Um, the Return Movement basically is a, a, a collection of different uh, African diaspora youth who are in the United States, um, which extends to other diasporas as well. And the objective is to mobilize the youth to uh, reclaim or reconnect with their places of origin um, and uh, in, the, in the long run, sort of uh, have some um, contribution towards the development of their places um, uh, of where they, taste their, uh, they trace their roots. And so I appreciate what uh, Stacy and uh, uh, Dr. Burton have just uh, mentioned in terms of uh, unlearning some of the stereotypes that exist on both sides, but also uh, unlearning the experiences that we have as uh, people of African descent and creating uh, developing relationships between the two groups. So, uh, so, so both the two initiatives and the return uh, return movement sort of seek to um, not only uh, focus on that empowerment of uh, the identity of Afri uh, African youth, but also um, empowerment of their their uh, of their personal development and to to sort of realize their potential. Um, and so the group that we are starting here in Louisville also focuses on, this, on the same aspect. Uh, many of us are, um, are migrants. And uh, I would say with our different communities where we, where we find ourselves, we have various issues that sort of um, hinder our path to development as a community, but also to development uh, of uh, ourselves as in individuals. So the, the, the hope at the moment is that we can mobilize these young leaders to sort of uh, begin to empower themselves, but share that, um, uh, that knowledge with their, uh, their counterparts and the communities where they are. And so, you know, what does you know, Pan-Africanism mean to me in, in these different initiatives? I think um, for that, for me, I always go back to a famous saying of Mwalimu uh, uh, Julius Nyerere, uh, former president of Tanzania, who said that um, nationalism is meaningless unless it's at the same time Pan-Africanism. Uh, and, and I think we need to look at that to, to, to understand the, the ideology itself and to begin to unlearn some of the practices that have been uh, done on the continent um, specifically here, I'm speaking of uh, African diaspora who have returned to their places of origin um, and sort of uh, went in with the uh, savior mindset of the colonials um, at the same time. Um, uh, I, I like to look at uh, Ethiopia as, as an example in terms of when we talk about diaspora returning and the inclusion of diaspora in general. Um, Emperor Haile Selassie um, 
uh, had uh, a lot of help from the from, from the Jamaicans uh, during the uh, the war uh, with Italy, and uh, with 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 that came sort of a stipulation of we will give you citizenship and sort of um, uh, a place a, a place you can call home um, uh, after you know receiving help from you. But uh, we we con we we tend to see sort of this difficulty of some of those. Uh, Jamaicans were in that struggle who did not get to 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 see or uh, until today have not have not been able to to realize that promise and so for us as young people and also keeping in mind that Africa is the youngest continent in terms of population um, there is a crucial need for young people to 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 begin to to understand those experiences and start to unlearn some of the things that have been done in the past and begin to uh, to, to, to innovate creative ways in which uh, the African diaspora can be involved in terms of the uh, economic and political and social development of the continent as a whole. All right. Thank you very much, Amos, for this wonderful initiative uh, you're working on. And uh, we hope that things will um, continue to progress and that down the line, uh, we personally could be involved in those initiative uh, to sub capacity. So I'm going to circle back to Dr. Dr. Mbay, right? And I'm going to also ask uh, the panelists to try to be succinct in your uh, responses so that we have uh, time for questions from, uh, from the audience. So uh, Dr. Mbay, uh, I want us to, uh, I want you to, Tell us more about um, uh, Pan-Africanism and Pan-African projects in the 21st century. So what major political economic projects are Pan-African institutions uh, such as the African Union working on currently? And, and how can these projects uh, transform the everyday lives of Africans and people of, of African descent? Well, I mean, you know, I was just looking at... Uh, the speech of uh, Haile Selassie, the 1963 speech uh, towards African unity. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see um, a, a passage there where he writes um, and he says, but while we agree that the ultimate destiny of this continent lies in political union, we must at the same time recognize that the obstacles to be overcome in its achievement are at once numerous and formidable. Africa's peoples did not emerge into liberty in uniform conditions. Africans maintain different political systems. Our economies are diverse. Our social orders are rooted in different cultures and traditions. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, no clear consensus exists on the how and the what of this union. Is it to be informed, federal, confederal, or unitary? Is the sovereignty of individual states to be reduced and if so, by how much and in what areas? On these and other questions, there is no agreement. And if we wait for agreed answers, generations hence matters will be little advanced while the debate still rages. I think the point he's getting here uh, at here is the fact that the African Union has this challenge, which of course has, you know, has out outlived uh, uh, Haile Selassie. And the challenge is that we are caught in between balkanization, fragmentation between our states, 
political and economic systems that really do not favor, I would say, integration, collaborations, you see, uh, whether they are monetary, whether they are just like uh, dealing with, let us say, the movement of people and goods within Africa. Uh, we have competing interests that make us vulnerable, you see? Like, uh, look at just like the different life expectancies, you know, the varieties. In Ivory Coast, it's about 53 for men. In Mali, it's worse. In Senegal, it's a little better. Huh? You go to uh, Libya or Algeria because of the current conditions and the current wars that have existed over the past few years, it's getting worse. Uh, in South Africa, the economic system is good in one sense, but if you look at the health system and the conditions of people of African descent over there, you have situations that are comparable to those you would find in uh, other parts of the black world. So I think, the, the, I think Pan-Africanism is at the center of the, the ideology and the goals of the African Union. Uh, but it hasn't been, uh, I would say, uh, created or hasn't led to practical transformative realities. Um, you know, I hear that many of you have, uh, of my colleagues who've spoken here, have used that term, which I like a lot, you know, uh, the, the, the adjective, transformative, you know, until things are transformative, they just become idealisms, you know. And now, uh, now when it comes to uh, the African Union, you know, if you look at uh, the regional economic communities, right, of the African Union, they are Pan-African uh, because their goal is to integrate uh, economic and political and social systems of various uh, particular uh, African countries. Uh, but in reality, as I said, you know, balkanization, competing interests, and the stronghold of the former neo-colonial powers will really have the, the, the might to decide who's going to be a president in an African country or not. You know, they really have the power to do that. They have a power to destabilize a particular African country. Uh, they have the power to, uh, let us say, look at what's happening in Mali right now, right? Uh, how come all of a sudden a group of military officers just decide, you know, to have a coup? Uh, you know, so what, what happens to democracy? What happens to due process? You know, um, uh, is that a fair system? Um, and ECOWAS, for instance, like right? uh, the Economic Community of West African States, that's a Pan-African, you know. I, and, and I think uh, there are, and it wasn't there actually this initiative uh, to actually uh, uh, consider the, the diaspora, right, uh, the African diaspora, uh, African immigrants, uh, and their descendants who are in the diaspora, as another African nation, you know, so yeah. that's Pan-African. So, 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 uh, so we do have, I think, good visions, we do have good goals, but ultimately the problem comes down to uh, uh, what Dr. Bolton was saying, um, you know, the, the, the fact that we need, we need conversation and we need to go beyond the stereotypes. So the stereotypes exist not only in our study of the relationship between uh, uh, people of African descent in the continent and abroad, uh, but also, in the relationships themselves between uh, African states, African nations, uh, and let alone, you know, those other stereotypes and divisions that we have between uh, North Africa uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so I don't want to take too much time here because I want to give other people opportunities to, to, to chime into the conversation, but I can come back to it. Dr. Yeah. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. And you were right uh, a few years ago, the African Union decided to consider uh, the diaspora. And by that, I mean,
people of African descent who live uh, outside of the continent as the sixth region of the African continent, right? So you have North, West, East, uh, South, Central, and then the diaspora as the sixth region of, uh, of Africa. Uh, Dr. McLeod, uh, is Pan-Africanism still a relevant concept in the Caribbean? And if yes, how can the concept be economically relevant to Caribbean nations today? Well, Pan-Africanism uh, will, will always be relevant within the Caribbean. It's at the um, center of, I believe, um, the unity between um, a lot of these uh, West Indian islands. Um, and, and like you said, um, you have things like the AU coming together and recognizing the diaspora. You have Haiti, you know, um, Haiti's membership um, and, and, and being recognized uh, as, as a member of the AU. Um, that's, that's really transformative and, and, and progress um, that I see. Uh, another thing is uh, you have, you know, 186 years since um, emancipation in the West Indies. And so every year on August 1st, Emancipation Day is celebrated in the West Indies. And you have several African nations who are now celebrating it as well. Um, and so that's just another demonstration of these Pan-African linkages and sentiments that are still uh, reverberating um, throughout the diaspora um, with, its, with its exchanges um, with Africa. Um, I think from an economic standpoint, historically, the, um, the West Indies uh, and Africa have always been linked. Um, the, Britain used to call it, you know, their, their Caribbean colonies and their African colonies. They used to call them the tropical, the tropical colonies, you know, um, the tropical empire. Uh, and so whenever there was unrest in the West Indies um, and unrest in Africa, you know, the, the, that pressure was felt uh, by the British and, they're, 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 and that ultimately uh, led to um, decolonization speeding up following um, the Second World War. I think today, um, when, from an economic standpoint, um, we have to look at organizations like CARICOM. Uh, we have to look at organizations like the African Union who recognize each other um, as these regional organizations that are here to promote cooperation, uh, economic and, and, and political solidarity. Um, and we have to recognize that while those ties are there, those ties economically need to be strengthened because the trade between uh, CARICOM uh, and African nations um, is weak. And so that's something that definitely needs to be explored, uh, especially um, in nations like Nigeria you know, where oil is, is a huge driving force in their economy. Um, you know, in West Indian islands, um, or excuse me, in uh, other Caribbean nations like Guyana and, and Venezuela, where, where oil is now um, central to their economies, you know, the potentials for cooperation um, need to be explored. Um, that's one thing. I think uh, probably the most important um, a uh, place where Pan-Africanism can be relevant um, to, to the Caribbean from an economic standpoint um, is especially in the, um, the drive for reparations. Um, CARICOM, number of uh, Caribbean nations are now coming together and they're making their case um, on the world stage uh, to the UN. 
um, for reparations. And as these, as these cases are made, um, there needs to be cooperation um, between um, African nations um, and the West Indies to, to, to put these cases together, to essentially share notes <laughs> uh, and expose the, 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 the linkages that have been there uh, for hundreds of years. Um, and so I think um, these similar economic histories that, that link the, the Caribbean and Africa, this colon these colonial histories and now these neo-colonial histories um, that, that, that we can observe, we see, you know, um, a coup taking place in Mali, and we know that there's European involvement there. We know there's European involvement in Nkrumah's deposition. Um, we also know that there was American and European uh, involvement in um, the removal of Maurice Bishop uh, from Grenada. Um, and, and, you know, I spoke of the West Indian influence in, in Ghana with Nkrumah, but there was an African influence in governance in Grenada when Maurice Bishop um, was was leading the nation as well. So um, we 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 have to understand that um, Caribbean, American, African um, oppression, and our liberation will always be linked, and Pan Africanism will always be relevant to that. Well, thank you very much for this uh, brilliant expose, Dr. McLeod. And you mentioned a very uh, important point, which is uh, reparation. And recently, uh, there is a even bigger uh, fervor about reparation um, in the United States, uh, in the Caribbean. And uh, there are calls for people to start having a serious conversation in, uh, about this, this issue. Uh, Stacy, uh, recently still talking about economic development. Uh, recently, Birch Kids International, uh, the organization you uh, founded and currently direct, launched a new economic and financial initiative called the Kizazi Fund to help Black families and Black kids in, in particular build uh, generational wealth. What is the Kizazi Fund about? And how did you come up with this initiative? And what are the short and long-term goals of the Kizazi Fund? The Kizazi Fund was a Pan-African um, Stacey, to your mic is, we, we're having difficulties hearing you. Hold on. All right. Say something. Is that any better? Maybe that's All better. Right. Yeah, try it. Okay, great, great. Okay. <laughs> so we have African and African Americans coming together mm -hmm. to um, identify particular practices that work, that either worked in the past or, you know, work um, still today, and then adapting those to address some of the challenges in our communities today. So the Kazazi Fund actually was inspired by a Congolese practice of when a child is born, um, people would bring livestock in the name of the child. Someone would take care of that livestock as it as the child grows up, and then and the child would learn how to take care of it. And then when they reach adulthood, they start out with their wealth. And so we have adapted that to um, work here. Um, well, we're piloting it this year uh, with 20 families, and so parents and families can put. Um, our goal is about $250 um, a year, so about 20 bucks a month, so it's accessible. They can do more. We hold that money and invest that money collectively. Um, and we have a partner credit union that's working with us. 
And over uh, the child's lifetime, the family and the child are getting like all kinds of financial education. They're forming um, um, a network of support with each other. We have um, partner organizations that are part of it. And when the child reaches, so they're growing up learning how to care for um, their, their um, money and how to, to build it in addition to other things. And when they reach adulthood, they can use that money for a down payment on a home, for education, or to start a business or, you know, as part of um, a, a business venture. And um, there's more to it um, than that. But it's that notion, and it's about long-term planning and thinking. But the, at the core of it, it's, you know, again, based in African heritage culture, and it makes use of our collective mindset, mm -hmm. you know, that we can do more together than we can do individually. Because um, being able to, as you know, um, the return on a savings account, even if you were putting that same money in your own savings account, you would not get the return that you would get when we have a, a you know, a, a bigger pot of money and we're investing that money um, and getting a much greater return. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you very much for that uh, wonderful initiative. And we wish you good luck and hopefully uh, this will grow uh, beyond um, the United States and uh, encompass other parts of uh, the Black Atlantic. For uh, Akram, uh, Akram Burton, uh, what role can Africa play today to ensure that people of African descent are treated with dignity and, and humanity? And also, is there any uh, economic slash business opportunity uh, that the African continent can present for people of of African descent. So, so it's a two-part question, right? How can Africa ensure that people of African descent are treated with dignity and humanity? And then what business slash economic opportunity, uh, opportunities uh, does Africa have for people of African descent? Akram. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, <clears throat> I first would start by saying that um, our ancestors whose shoulders we stand on have set the uh, set a uh, a platform for us to to move forward mm -hmm. in that area uh, and what I mean by that is is that um, struggles on the African continent struggles here struggles in the Caribbean we've always had a call and response all right and that's very uh, I would say connected to our culture. If, if you know anything about African drumming, uh, there's a call and there's a response. Mm -hmm. um, you see this indicative, uh, <clears throat> uh, Babakar talks about, you know, the, you know, the whole idea that we share a common, you know, struggle, that we have a multiplicity of, um, of, uh, of uh, what would it call it, Africanisms. That's what it was that he referred to. Um, the call and response is very important. You see it in African-American culture. You see it in the Caribbean, all right? The way it played out politically and socially is the most recent one was the, uh, well, actually not recent one, but uh, one that one people can remember is the apartheid movement. All right. 
there was a call and response that took place because the civil rights movement, there was a call and many leaders, not all African leaders responded to, to civil rights. When the four girls were bombed in Birmingham, we had a number of African leaders that stood up. A lot of African leaders didn't stand up because they were afraid that it was going to impinge on their uh, monies coming from Western you know, countries. So I, I think that when we, when we talk about uh, this call and response, we have to think about how we can build on what has already been established. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and know that this has happened before. This is not something that we're recreating. It, 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 the attempt was there before. And much like the movement here, those kinds of movements were squashed either by governmental agencies, uh, you know, Interpol, CIA, a number of other entities that pretty much was about trying to stop those movements from occurring. And so we have to keep that, keep that in mind. In terms of the economic uh, piece to, to your question, um, I have a friend who is from the Ivory Coast and uh, he, is, he has invested in some, a plot of land that has titanium. Um, and what's interesting is that he was able to get a, a small portion of the land, all right, because the Chinese beat him to the punch. All right? And so what he is looking for now is investors so that they could determine the amount of titanium and what it would take to mine that, to extract it, all right? And then that's when they will go in and actually extract it. So he's reaching out to people across the diaspora, but he's specifically looking at for people in, in, in um, here in the United States that have means and would like to develop it. The problem is, is that the people that he may most likely invest, they may not have any relationship whatsoever with, with the continent, but they just see this is a good business opportunity for them. Um, and so I, I would really suggest that, I mean, uh, that we begin to look at, you know, uh, those people who are invested in trying to make that connection with the motherland to get involved in projects like that, um, because that could help to finance a lot of the things that we're trying to do here. Um, and I, I'll just say this last thing, and that is that Malcolm in his last year, uh, traveled throughout the continent. And he met with, at the time was the OAU, Mm -hmm. um, many leaders in the OAU. And his his, uh, purpose when he came back was to develop a plan to take our plight to the United Nations. Um, And what I would suggest that that idea is still on the table and we should still do that um, because we are facing, you know, massive human rights violations on a number of different levels. I mean, COVID-19 is not, I mean, we're talking about police violence. We're talking about just the the need to have clean water. All right. Uh, And so we need to begin to flex our international 
uh, multinational muscle uh, to bear pressure um, on, you know, these forces that are really uh, impinging on our survival. All right, thank you very much, Okram Burton. And uh, you mentioned two important points, uh, investing on the continent, uh, business in the business environment, in Africa is getting better and better every day. And uh, I think that it would be profitable for people of African descent to, uh, to take advantage of, of that, try to visit more the continent and invest and learn more about the business environment. And hopefully uh, African states can also facilitate those uh, initiatives. Uh, Senegal and Ghana are working uh, towards initiatives like that, and I hope those can be extended to other African nations. You also mentioned how Africa could help uh, restore the dignity of people of African descent. Uh, many African leaders spoke about um, the death of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, and I hope that they will not be silent about police brutality uh, in the United States and other parts of the Black Atlantic. And our thoughts and also prayers go to the family of uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and all the fallen uh, people, people who were victim of uh, police brutality. And our thoughts and prayers also go to uh, the family of Chadwick Boseman, who uh, played uh, an important role in uh, uh, reestablishing Africa and, and, and blackness in the movie industry. And we sadly uh, lost him uh, to cancer uh, last night. So, and, and this is the, the last question uh, we'll go to Amos. Uh, you are working on a cultural retention project uh, currently, including a, a book project in Kirundi which is a language uh, spoken in, uh, in Burundi, where you're from. So you're working on this project to help young people from Burundi living in the United States uh, stay connected with their cultural roots. Why is this project important from a Pan-African standpoint? Thank you so much, Bamba, for that question. So I, wa I want to echo what Stacy earlier said about uh, self-determination. And um, I wholeheartedly believe that there's a different kind of uh, empowerment that comes from self-determination. Um, and if you allow me to kind of share a little bit of my story, um, I was born during a civil war in Burundi and I spent the first 12 years of my life in a refugee camp in Tanzania. And um, there, I would say there's sort of a different kind of culture that was created amongst the refugees. And um, it wasn't until about three years ago, in 2017, that I first landed um, in Burundi, the place where I was born. And with that first trip, I can say that my Africanness or um, my, uh, my understanding of my African identity began then, because before that, um, uh, the only understanding that I had of um, uh, my, my identity as a Burundian was only things that were passed down to me or that I had you know, heard in the news or uh, heard from other people. So, so, so th that empowerment in, in determining oneself and sort of being 
linked or connected to to your culture um, is is very very crucial when it, when we when we're talking about Pan Africanism. Um, I think Pan Africanism sort of has two demands for us. Uh, one is that African consciousness and um, the, the liberation of African nations. Um, so with that, um, uh, uh, there, there's a African or Kenyan writer who says, uh, who wrote the book, Decolonizing the Mind, the Decolonization of the Mind, um, Gugi Wationgo. And uh, he focuses on uh, language as a crucial aspect of the decolonization um, or liberation of, of, of African peoples. Um, and for me, that speaks a lot of volume in terms of where we are heading as uh, people uh, of African descent or people in uh, African diaspora. Um, so this project specifically uh, focuses on, on that, um, not only reconnecting with a culture um, where we, 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 we trace our roots, but also sort of decolonizing our understanding of the world and our understanding of ourselves. I thank you very much, Amos, and um, congratulations for your entrepreneurship and uh, undertaking all those wonderful projects. And we wish you also uh, good luck. We have 13 minutes left, right? So I think uh, it's only right to open the floor to uh, our participants. If you have questions, uh, comments you would like to make, so you have uh, 13 minutes and I will just ask you to like be as succinct as possible, like maybe one minute, one and a half uh, is enough to, to make a point. So I'm gonna ask Kevin, Kevin, yeah, if you can unmute your microphone and ask your question, Kevin, yes. Yeah, thank you, um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful panelists and for all the ideas that were shared. Um, I have one small, uh, it's not small, it's a question that, that I have. I would like maybe one or two of the panelists to address. Um, a lot of what has shared, uh, what was said today, um, I think has to do with the, it comes from a certain perspective of continuity. Um, and by that, I mean a certain view that, you know, there has always been relations between peoples of African descent. We have shared oppressions and all that. Um, but when I came to, to the, um, you know, when I think of, you know, Pan-Africanism Pan today is the topic of the discussion, I would think that um, there's some kind of necessity um, to reimagine that idea or concept um, in, in terms of what it means today, in the moment that we, we are living today, um, and, and rethink the practices that can lead to its fulfillment. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I mean, and, and if we think from that perspective, you know, we, we, we can ask ourselves, you know, what does Pan-Africanism mean? Uh, you know, it's an international kind of um, a movement, given, for example, the failures, you know, the, the, the re repeated failures of the African nation states, uh, or the, the greatly decreased sense of togetherness between, you know, Africans and people of the African diaspora, and all, all those things. Um, so maybe uh, the question, a question that I have to, to, to the panelists, you know, um, how can we, how can we reimagine Pan-Africanism? Um, within a certain kind of notion of reinvention of Africa uh, and of the re relations, you know, a certain also reinvention of the relations between uh, peoples of African descent. So mm -hmm. maybe going beyond that perspective framework of continuity, but really a perspective of reinvention and reimagination. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Uh -huh. So panelists, if do you have a, uh, a response to his question, how can we 
reimagine uh, Pan Africanism today. Dr. Hmm? Mbaid? Yeah, like um, you know, actually, this, this is a question that I tackle, at least try to tackle mm -hmm. my book project, uh, the book that was published in 2017 by Routledge, entitled The Black Cosmopolitanism and Anti-Colonialism. Mm -hmm. Because what I see as an opportunity, a concept that can lead us to doing what uh, the, the colleague just mentioned, uh, the, 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 the reimagination of the relationship between people of African descent, um, is to look at contradictions. And one way to really study those contradictions is to emphasize the concept of cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. That there is a concept known as black cosmopolitanism, which um, uh, contains within itself pan-Africanism, uh, but which also looks at that very human attitude. You know, because cosmopolitanism looks at global citizenship. You know? uh, we aspire to be global citizens. Ideas such as liberty, equality, and justice they're not the preserves of people of European descent. You see, as uh, our colleague, uh, Professor McLeod, right, mentioned earlier, I mean, republicanism, you know, as he suggested, you know, like the whole idea of a revolution, you know, uh, was already incipient in the Haitian Revolution. You see, uh, the Haitian Revolution taught the world what freedom was, what liberty means. Uh, so, so when they tell us that, well, the idea actually necessarily came from uh, the French Revolution, we have to ask ourselves, you know, uh, whether this is true or not. Uh, and actually, we can even go to earlier movements, you know, and earlier black histories in which those concepts of liberty, justice, and equality were already existent. So we're not saying that the black world produced everything. We can just say that the black world contributed to the production of all those emancipatory ideas, right? So if we do so, we also have to acknowledge the fact that uh, humans in general, you know, are, uh, can express solidarity with others, but they can also express selfishness towards others. You see, you know, at the end of the day, you know, even if we do care about the rest of the world, it's not just like we're going to take all our monies and invest them into charities, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we care, we care more about our nucleus family, you know? And this is like independently of race and ethnicity and nationality, et cetera, you know? So if we bring those questions like into the, into the debate, then we can understand why was Richard Wright acting the way he did when he visited Kwame Krumah in 1953, right? You know, if you look at uh, Black Power, a record of reaction in the land of pathos, right? The book in which Richard Wright describes, narrates, talks about his trip in 1953 trip to Ghana, right? And, you know, like the, 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 the very complicated relationship that he had with Ghana, with what the whole, with, with uh, Kwame Krumah, there's fascination, but there are some doubt, right? There is like a, this attraction to Africa, but there are some hesitations, you know? Uh, he has different particular concepts on what tradition is, but Richard Wright would come some, go somewhere else and, and claim Africa, you see? And, 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 and embrace Africa. You got what Richard Wright did in the, in the development of negritude. You know? Richard Wright played a major role in the black consciousness of black writers, of intellectual writers, of uh, Senghor. You know? of, uh, so that is also part of Pan-Africanism. Now, what I wanted to end with is the fact that the problem that I see the most is, that, is the absence of learning from one another. You know, one day I was watching a YouTube video and I saw an African-American tourist. She was visiting Senegal. 
and they were at the Federal Bridge of Saint Louis, Senegal, you know, the bridge uh, that the French built. And she was standing there and she was lamenting. She's like, look at all of these resources, you know, these touristic resources, these economic potentials. Why isn't, why isn't anybody exploiting them? She's right, you know, just count the number of tourist resorts that you see near the bridge, you know, most of them, you know, are owned by French tourists, French expatriates, you see? So then you just go downtown, you know, or the, you know, or, or even uh, to the other districts of Saar, and you see youths, unemployed, wondering what they are going to do, you know? Many of them are dwelling in alcohol, right? In drug consumption, you know? In just like waiting and, you know, and, and, and in, in rioting, you know? In, in let us say, being, being used by the political leadership, you know? Mm-hmm. And we do have here, and in, not only in the United States, but in the diaspora, in the, in the diaspora, a vast amount of experts, number of experts, scholars, you know, schools, universities, research centers that can help maximize those potentials. You know, let me just take one example. Popular culture. Look at the strong influence of black diaspora and popular culture on Africa. You know, the youth are into R&B, they're into rap, into hip hop, into the fashion, you see? So there are like so many different potentials, but what's, what's, what we don't have is, uh, that's something that I really uh, lament, is the absence of theorizing our culture. Why do people go to Italy? People go to Italy because Italy is represented as having all of these wonderful structures, wonderful museums. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, let me just set up there and let <laughs> So basically you are saying there is a need to capitalize and monetize. Exactly. And and I think that's where we can have these contacts. That's where we can have that. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's where we can can further Mm -hmm. the transformative policies that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Jamaica, I went to Jamaica in 2018, January, uh, February, February for a conference on reggae. I was blown away. I was blown away by what the Jamaicans are able to do with reggae, what they are able to do with the Bob Marley Museum, mm-hmm. the town yard, you know, the whole history and how they value Marley and how mm-hmm. they value reggae. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's so, an example. So I, I just want to say that we cannot under, under, underestimate the, the impact of uh, the internalized oppression, you know, that, that, that exists within the African-American community and also throughout the African diaspora. Um, and w- we need to look at it from a kind of a social psychological perspective. Uh, if we're talking about moving forward to build, we, we must address that. Um, when, when I talk about stereotypes, this, this is part of, of that. I mean, basically people have believed the hype, they have ingested that uh, over time and uh, you know, it, the way it plays out in black communities here in the United States is a tremendous amount of self-hatred about who they are. I grew up as a kid in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the worst thing you could say to someone, right? If, if you having words and they go back and forth and back and forth, the one that trumped them all was you are an ABC. You know what ABC is? Africa's blackest child. And that is still being used today. All right. So 
if we try to move forward and don't address this internalized conflict that's going on, I, I think we'll, it's going to be problematic. So I, I just want to raise that as, a, as something for us to think about, you know, um, in the mental health community today in the United States, internalized racism is actually a, a term that they use as, as um, you know, one of the, um, you know, uh, uh, issues that impact us as, as a people. Mm -hmm. They have tremendous amount of papers and studies being done now about that. Mm -hmm. The violence that we see, the senseless violence that we see going on in the communities, it, it, it springs out of that. And how, how can, you know, two young brothers living maybe on the same street or around the corner see it a need to kill each other? Uh, so I just want to bring that, bring that home because that's a, that's a reality that, and, and we see it playing out in many ways uh, on the continent, although it has a religious veneer. Uh, and and we, we need to address that as well. If we're talking about coming together, Malcolm used to say, you know, keep your religion in the closet when it comes to conversations about unity and, and freedom, is that Whatever it is that you do spiritually to enlighten yourself, fine. But there has no place, you know, when we when it comes to discussing, you know, our unity because that's what's getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I would agree. Can I, just, can I add one little thing about you know just reimagining the question about reimagining Pan Africanism? I think one of the places that is so ripe for that is in the diaspora. Like if you are Look, I mean, look in many cities, if you just take America for you know, example, where you have a mixing of people uh, from many different places um, that find themselves together, don't necessarily know each other, don't necessarily work together, have all kinds of, we, talk, we keep talking about the stereotypes that we've had with each other that keep us from, from, um, from unifying. But there's so much potential there and I think we're squandering it if we don't make use of that and really put some particular focus on what bringing what we can do together um, that will not only as we partner with folks on the continent and partner with each other between countries and all of that, but we have um, folks who are getting educated, who are running businesses, we don't and we're all mixed together, but we're missing it if we don't have a Pan-African intentional Pan-African mindset and begin to um, know each other and in fact work together. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Stacey. Uh, and, I, and I would like to also add to uh, Kevin's uh, question that um, there is a, a, a revival, a renaissance of Pan-Africanism as a concept, but also as a movement uh, in the 21st century. Now you have uh, youth movements on the African continent, such as uh, Yanamar, uh, you have uh, Bale Citoyen, uh, Filimbi, Lucha, who are taking uh, over Pan-Africanism and turn it into a 21st century ideology that is guiding youth activism. And in that spirit, they recently, in 2018, they formed uh, the first uh, uh, Pan-African network of social movements uh, in the 21st century called AFRIKI, 
which gathers like over 30 uh, social movements on um, in Africa and the diaspora, including Black Lives Matter. Uh, they have the representative, at least when it was being formed, uh, Project South in Atlanta, Yanamar. So there is a new impetus that these young folks are trying to bring uh, to the idea of Pan-Africanism and trying to make sure that they are fully participating in the democratic process, make sure that their countries, uh, their voices are heard in the way uh, their countries and everyday politics uh, is run in those, uh, their, uh, the places they live in. So um, maybe- Bamba, if you allow me to, sorry. Yes, yes, go yeah. ahead. I had tried to raise my hand, but um, I think what I wanted to say was similar to what Stacy was saying, but I think I want to add that I don't think uh, we have actually had a, a sufficient dialogue between uh, the diaspora or people of African descent and people on the continent. And I think uh, with what um, Stacy was saying, uh, there has to be sort of a, that dialogue within the diaspora. Um, uh, um, you know, a lot of young people who, who recently migrated from, from Africa tend to sort of touch on the fact that there's, we are sort of at, at an impasse. We have conflict with uh, people uh, of African uh, descent, um, African-Americans I'm speaking about here, when we land on the, uh, uh, in these um, Western countries. And I think there, we need to, 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 to develop sort of a, a pathway to have a sufficient dialogue. And this, I don't think this is even new. I think when we stop, look at the, the, the history of Pan-Africanism in general, um, you had sort of uh, the Afrocentricism on the, you know, in, in the Americas and, and, and in Europe. And in Africa, we had all these leaders who were focusing a lot on um, decolonization and independence. And I think as you rightly put uh, at the beginning of the discussion, sort of those discussions have loosened over time. And uh, on the African continent, I would say that there, there has been a move towards more of that decolonization um, and, and, and the unity of, of the Af African nations. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a totally different discussion on this side of the world. And so um, I, I would like to say that I think for us to reimagine what Pan-Africanism means, um, there has to be that dialogue between the two, uh, the two worlds. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we, quickly. Yes. Quickly. quickly well, yes. Quickly. Just, just want to add that um, what's essential to Pan-Africanism today, um, and, and like Professor Mbai mentioned, pop culture is absolutely essential, you know, in the works of Beyonce and, and Nas, Damien Marley, and Burner Boy, collaborations taking place. Um, and as, as essential and vital as art is to, to, to Black liberation movements, we have to transcend that and become more informed um, and international in our thinking. Um, because today we tend to be very nationalistic in our thinking. Um, so we're not informed of what's actually taking place on the continent, in the Caribbean. I'm speaking from African-American perspective at least. Um, and so I think today we need to do what we've always done historically is exploit the systems um, that we have. Um, you know, back in the early 20th, early 20th century, it was us making use of print media um, and using, um, you know, uh, shipping companies, you know, to, 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 to get newspapers and, and different letters and, and, and speeches throughout the African diaspora in Africa. Uh, today, we have 
to exploit social media. It's the, it's the biggest way for us to communicate with each other. And it has to be a deliberate thing, um, especially because as instrumental as West Indians were um, in the spreading and, and translations of, of Pan-Africanism early on, it's uh, African-Americans today who have the most access um, to these systems and, and, and are just like, drive, like, like African-Americans are driving um, and having this huge influence on popular culture. Um, for people of African descent, we need to be um, that same way and just as influential politically. Mm -hmm. um, and so making sure that we are being deliberate and, and paying attention to what's going on in Africa, um, you know, paying attention to the, what imperialism looks like today, how the United States, if we're protesting, um, you know, if we're protesting um, police brutality here, definitely be aware of, of the fact that the United States is building Africa, they're building military bases in Africa, 13 military bases in Africa right now. Um, no African military bases in the United States, you know? You have to look at closely at the United States involvement in what happened in Mali, the coup that happened in Mali uh, a couple of weeks ago. Have to have to look at and pay attention to the open slave trading that's going on in Libya right now. We have to be aware of all of these things um, and add that uh, international context to our thinking um, and uh, our, our, our political aspirations. Um, and Pan-Africanism, that, that's essential to what Pan-Africanism is. Um, and that's something that we need to carry on if we're going to um, make it relevant for us in the future. All right, guys, thank you very much. The discussions uh, were very rich and uh, critical and uh, the questions were also very relevant. Um, we will continue the discussions uh, offline. And uh, of course, I couldn't, um, we couldn't end this without thanking uh, our panelists, but also uh, all the people who participated uh, through Zoom or through Facebook uh, Live. Um, Moena, Tyler Fleming, Aline Badra, Khadija, I wish I could name everyone, Margaret, James, Chaz, Itahan, uh, Imani, Kayla, Matt, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation. And uh, I am I, also uh, the host of the Africanist uh, podcast, which is available on all the major podcasts this discussion will be available um, on the podcast so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it and uh, we will uh, keep having these uh, wonderful conversations uh, to understand uh, some of the major issues that are going on uh, in the Black Atlantic so on that note I wish everybody a peaceful weekend and thank you for uh, being online with us today thank you guys thanks thank you guys thank you very thank you. much we appreciate thanks, it thank you very much